Section twenty six of the Martyrdom of Man by Winwood Reed. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter two Religion Part eleven. This empire, it is true, was soon divided and soon became weak in all its parts. The Arabs could conquer, but they could not govern. Separate sovereignties or caliphates were established in Babylonia. Egypt and Spain, while provinces such as Morocco or Bokhara frequently obtained independence by rebellion. It is needless to describe at length the history of the caliphs and their successors. It is only the twice-told tale of the Euphrates and the Nile. The caliphs were at first commanders of the faithful, in reality, but they were soon degraded, both in Cairo and Baghdad, to the position of the Roman Pope at the present time. The government was seized by the Praetorian Guards, who in Baghdad were descended from Turkish prisoners or Negroes imported from Zanzibar, and in Egypt from Mamelukes or European slaves, brought in their boyhood from the wild countries surrounding the Black Sea, and trained up from tender years to the practice of arms, the sons of Christian parents, but branded with a cross on the soles of their feet, that they might never cease to tread upon the emblem of their native creed. However, by means of the Arab conquest, the East was united as it had never been before. The Euphrates was no longer a line of partition between two worlds. Arab traders established their factories on both sides of the Indian Ocean, and along the Asiatic shores of the Pacific. Men from all countries met at Mecca once a year. The religion of the Arabs conquered nations whom the Arabs themselves had never seen. When the Mohammedan Turks of Central Asia took Constantinople and reduced the caliphates to provinces, although the people of Mohammed were driven back to their wilderness, the strength and glory of his religion was increased. In the same manner, the conquest of Hindustan was an achievement of Islam in which the Arabs bore no part, and in Africa also we shall find that the Koran reigns over extensive regions which the Arabs visit only as travellers and merchants. Once upon a time Morocco and Spain were one country, and Europe extended to the Atlas Mountains, which stood upon the shores of a great salt sea. Beyond that ocean, to the south, lay the dark continent, surrounded on all sides by water, except on the north-east, where it was joined to Asia near Aden by an isthmus. A geological revolution converted the African Ocean into a sandy plain, and the straits of Bab el-Mandeb and Gibraltar were torn open by the retreating waves. But the Sahara, though no longer under water, is still in reality a sea. The true Africa begins on its southern coast, and is entirely distinct from the European-like countries between the Mediterranean and the Atlas, and from the strip of garden land which is cast down every year in the desert by the Nile. The black Africa, or Sudan, is a gigantic tableland. Its sides are built of granite mountains which surround it with a parapet, or brim, and which send down rivers on the outside towards the sea, on the inside into the plateau. The outside rivers are brief and swift. The inside rivers are long and sluggish in their course, winding in all directions, collecting into enormous lakes, 
and sometimes flowing forth through gaps in the parapet to the Sahara or the sea. A tableland is seldom so uniform and smooth as the word denotes. The African plateau is intersected by mountain ranges and ravines, juts into volcanic isolated cones, and varies much in its climate, its aspect, its productions, and its altitude above the sea. It may be divided into platforms or river basins, which are true geographical provinces, and each of which should be named with the names of its explorers. There is the platform of Abyssiniae, which belongs to Bruce, the platform of the White Nile, including the lakes of Burton, Tanganyika, of Speke, Victoria Nyanza, and of Baker, Albert Nyanza, the platform of the Zambezi, with its lakes Nyasa and Nagami, discovered by Livingstone, the greatest of African explorers the platform of the Congo, including the regions of western equatorial Africa, hitherto unexplored, the platform of South Africa, below twenty degrees south, which enjoys an Australian climate, and also Australian wealth in its treasure-filled mountains and its wool-abounding plains, and lastly, the platform of the Niger, which deserves a place, as will be shown, in universal history. The discoverers of the Niger in its upper are Park, who first saw the Niger, Cayley and myself. In its central and eastern parts, Lang, who first reached Timbuktu, Cayley, who first returned from it, Denham, Clapperton, Lander, and Bart. The original inhabitants of Africa were the Hottentots, or Bushmen, a dwarfish race who have restless, rambling, ape-like eyes a click in their speech, and bodies which are the wonder of anatomists. They are now found only on the South African platform, or perhaps, here and there, on the platform of the Congo. They have been driven southward by the Negroes, as the Eskimos in America were driven north by the Red Indians, and the Finns in Europe by the Celtic tribes, while the Negroes themselves have yielded, in some parts of Africa, to Asiatic tribes, as the Celts in Gaul and Britain yielded to the Germans. These Negroes are sometimes of so deep a brown that the skin appears to be quite black. Sometimes their skin is as light as a mulatto's. The average tint is a rich, deep bronze. Their eyes are dark, though blue eyes are occasionally seen. Their hair is black, though sometimes of rusty red, and is always of a woolly texture. To this rule there are no exceptions. It is the one constant character, the one infallible sign by which the race may be detected. Their lips are not invariably thick. Their noses are frequently well formed. In physical appearance they differ widely from one another. The inhabitants of the swamps, the dark forests, and the mountains are flat-nosed, long-armed, and thin-carved, with mouths like muscles, broad splay feet, and projecting heels. It was, for the most part, from this class that the American slave markets were supplied. The Negroes of the States and the West Indies represent the African in the same manner as the people of the Pontine Marshes represent the inhabitants of Italy. The Negroes of South Africa stand at the opposite extreme, enjoying an excellent climate and a wholesome supply of food, 
they are superior to most other people of their race. Yet it is certain they are Negroes, for they have woolly hair, and they do not differ in language or customs from the inhabitants of the other platforms. When the Portuguese first traded on the African coasts, they gave the name Caffres, or Pagans, to the Negroes of Guinea, as well as to those of the Cape and Mozambique. It is quite an accident that the name has been retained for the latter tribes alone, yet such is the power of a name that the Caffres and Negroes are universally supposed to be distinct. It is impossible, however, to draw any line between the two. Pure Negroes are born on the coast of Guinea, and in the interior with complexions as light, with limbs as symmetrical, and with features as near to the European standard as can be found in all Caffraria. Between the hideous being of the Nile and Niger deltas, and the robust shepherds of the south, or the aristocratic chieftains of the west, there is a wide difference, no doubt, but intermediate gradations exist. There is also much variety among the Negroes in respect to manners, mental condition, political government, and mode of life. Some tribes live only on the fruit of net and spear, eked out with insects and berries and shells. Property is ill-defined among them. If a man makes a canoe, the others use it when they please. If he builds a better house than his neighbours, they pull it down. Others, though still in the hunting condition, have gardens of plantains and cassada. In this condition the headman of the village has little power, but property is secured by law. Other tribes are pastoral, and resemble the Arabs in their laws and customs. The patriarchal system prevails among them. There are regions in which the federal system prevails. Many villages are leagued together, and the headmen, acting as deputies of their respective boroughs, meet in Congress to debate questions of foreign policy and to enact laws. Large empires exist in the Sudan. In some of these the king is a despot who possesses a powerful bodyguard equivalent to a standing army, a court with its regulations of etiquette, and a well-ordered system of patronage and surveillance. In others, he is merely an instrument in the hands of priests or military nobles, and is kept concealed, giving audience from behind a curtain to excite the veneration of the vulgar. There are also thousands of large walled cities, resembling those of Europe in the Middle Ages, or of ancient Greece, or of Italy before the supremacy of Rome, encircled by pastures and by arable estates, and by farming villages to which the citizens repair at harvest time to superintend the labour of their slaves. But such cities, with their villeggiatura, their municipal government, their agora or forum, their fortified houses, their feuds and street frays of Capulet and Montague, are not indigenous in Africa. Their existence is comparatively modern, and is due to the influence of religion. An African village, old style, is usually a street of huts, with walls like hurdles, and a thatch projecting so that its owner may sit beneath it in sun or rain. The door is low, one has to crawl in order to go in. There are no windows. The house is a single room. In its midst burns a fire which is never suffered to go out, for it is a light in darkness, a servant, a companion, 
and the guardian angel. It purifies the miasmatic air. The roof and walls are smoke-dried, but clean. In one corner is a pile of wood, neatly cut up into billets, and in another is a large earthen jar filled with water on which floats a gourd or calabash, a vegetable bowl. Spears, bows, quivers, and nets hang from pegs upon the walls. Let us suppose that it is night. Four or five black forms are lying in a circle with their feet toward the fire, and two dogs with pricked up ears creep close to the ashes, which are becoming grey and cold. The day dawns. A dim light appears through the crevices and crannies of the walls. The sleepers rise and roll up their mats, which are their beds, and place on one side the round logs of wood, which are their pillows. The man takes down his bow and arrows from the wall, fastens wooden rattles round his dog's necks, and goes out into the bush. The women replenish the fire, and lift up an inverted basket whence sally forth a hen and her chickens, which make at once for the open door to find their daily bread for themselves outside. The women take hoes and go to the plantation, or they take pitchers to fill at the brook. They wear round the waist, before and behind, two little aprons made from a certain bark, soaked and beaten, until it is as flexible as leather. Every man has a plantation of these cloth trees round his hut. The unmarried girls wear no clothes at all, but they are allowed to decorate themselves with bracelets and anklets of iron, flowers in their ears, necklaces of red berries like coral, girdles of white shells, hair oiled and patted out with a chignon, and sometimes white ashes along the parting. The ladies fill their pitchers and take their morning bath, discussing the merits or demerits of their husbands. The air is damp and cold, and the trees and grass are heavy with dew. But presently the sun begins to shine, the dewdrops fall heavy and large as drops of rain, the birds chirp, the flowers expand their drowsy leaves and receive the morning calls of butterflies and bees. The forest begins to buzz and hum like a great factory awaking to its work. When the sun is high, boys come from the bush with vegetable bottles frothing over with palm wine. The cellar of the African and his glass and china shop and his clothing warehouse are in the trees. In the midst of the village is a kind of shed a roof supported on bare poles. It is the palaver house, in which, at this hour, the old men sit and debate the affairs of state, or decide lawsuits, each orator holding a spear when he is speaking, and planting it in the ground before him as he resumes his seat. Oratory is the African's one fine art. His delivery is fluent. His harangues, though diffuse, are adorned with phrases of wild poetry. That building is also the clubhouse of the elders, and there, when business is over, they pass the heat of the day, seated on logs which are smooth and shiny from use. At the hour of noon, their wives or children bring them palm wine and present it on their knees, clapping their hands in a token of respect. And then, all is still. It is the hour of silence and tranquillity, the hour which the Portuguese call the calm. The sun sits enthroned on the summit of the sky. Its white light is poured upon the earth. 
the straw thatch shines like snow the forest is silent all nature sleeps then down 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 sinks the sun and its rays shoots slantwise through the trees the hunters return and their friends run out and greet them as if they had been gone for years murmuring to them in a kind of baby language calling them by their names of love shaking their right hands caressing their faces patting them upon their breasts embracing them in all ways except with the lips for the kiss is unknown among the africans and so they toy and babble and laugh with one another till the sun turns red and the air turns dusky and the giant trees cast deep shadows across the street strange perfumes arise from the earth fireflies sparkle grey parrots come forth from the forest and fly screaming round intending to roost in the neighbourhood of man the women bring their husbands the gourd dish of boiled plantains or bush yams made hot with red pepper seasoned with fish or venison sauce and when this simple meal is ended boom boom goes the big drum the sweet reed flute pipes forth the girls and lads begin to sing in a broad clean swept place they gather together jumping up and down with glee the young men form in one row the women in another and dance in two long lines retreating and advancing with graceful undulations of their bodies and arms waving in the air and now there is a squealing wailing unearthly sound and out of the wood with a hop skip and jump comes mumbo jumbo a hideous mask on his face and a scourge in his hand woe to the wife who would not cook her husband's dinner or who gave him saucy words for mumbo-jumbo is the censor of female morals. Well, the guilty ones know him as they run screaming to their huts. Then again the dance goes on, and if there is a moon, it does not cease throughout the night. Such is the picturesque part of savage life. But it is not savage life. It merely lies upon the surface as paint lies upon the skin. Let us take a walk through that same village on another day. Here in a hut is a young man with one leg in the stocks and with his right hand bound to his neck by a cord. The palm wine and the midnight dance and the furtive caresses of Azua overpowered his discretion. He was detected and now he is put in log. If his relations do not pay the fine he will be sold as a slave or if there is no demand for slaves in that country he will be killed. His friends reprove him for trying to steal what the husband was willing to sell, and might he not have guessed that Azua was a decoy? Another day the Palava house has the aspect of a Crockford's. An old man, who is one of the village grandees, is spinning nuts for high stakes, and has drunk too much to see that he is overmatched. He loses his mats, his weapons, his goats, his fowls, his plantation, his house, his slaves whom he took prisoners in his young and warlike days, his wives, his children, and his aged mother who fed him at her breast. All are lost, all are gone. And then, with flushed eyes and trembling hand, he begins to gamble for himself. He stakes his right leg, 
and loses it. He may not move it until he has won it back or until it is redeemed. He loses both legs. He stakes his body and loses that also and becomes a bond-servant or is sold as a slave. Let us give another scene. A young man of family has died. The whole village is convulsed with grief and fear. It does not appear natural to them that a man should die before he has grown old. Some malignant power is at work among them. Is it an evil spirit whom they have unwittingly offended, and who is taking its revenge? Or is it a witch? The great fetish man has been sent for, and soon he arrives, followed by his disciples. He wears a cap waving with feathers, and a party-coloured garment covered with charms. Horns of gazelles, shells of snails, and a piece of leopard's liver wrapped up in the leaves of a poison-giving tree. His face is stained with the white juice from a dead man's brain. He rings an iron bell as he enters the town, and, at the same time, the drum begins to beat. The drum has its language, so that those who are distant from the village understand what it is saying. With short, lively sounds, it summons to the dance. It thunders forth the alarm of fire or war, loudly and quickly, with no interval between the beats. And now it tolls the hour of judgment and the day of death. The fetish man examines the dead man and says, It is the work of a witch. He casts lots with knotted cords. He mutters incantations. He passes round the villages and points out the guilty person who is usually some old woman whom popular opinion has previously suspected and is ready to condemn. She is, however, allowed the benefit of an ordeal. A gourd filled with the red water is given her to drink. If she is innocent, it acts as an emetic. If she is guilty, it makes her fall senseless to the ground. She is then put to death with a variety of tortures, burned alive or torn limb from limb, tied on the beach at low water to be drowned by the rising tide, rubbed with honey and laid out in the sun, or buried in an anthill, the most horrible death of all. These examples are sufficient to show that the life of the savage is not a happy one, and the existence of each clan or tribe is precarious in the extreme. They are like the wild animals, engaged from day to night in seeking food, and ever watchful against the foes by whom they are surrounded. The men who go out hunting, the girls who go with their pitchers to the village brook, are never sure that they will return, for there is always war with some neighbouring village, and their method of making war is by ambuscade. But beside these real and ordinary dangers, the savage believes himself to be encompassed by evil spirits, who may, at any moment, spring upon him in the guise of a leopard, or cast down upon him the dead branch of a tree. In order to propitiate these invisible beings, his life is entangled with intricate rites. It is turned this way and that way, as oracles are delivered, or as omens appear. It is impossible to describe, or even to imagine, the tremulous condition of the savage mind. Yet the traveller can see from their aspect and manners that they dwell in a state of never-ceasing dread. 
End of section 26